Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. UFC. That's the nothing personal word of the day. We've got a Samson sit down. I can't believe we, we Coca. I got to give Coca the credit. I've never met John. John Anik is here. He has a podcast host of the Anik and Florian podcast, but he's the voice of the UFC MMA. I didn't know him. And now he is on nothing personal. Thanks to Coca. They've known each other. Wait, how do you know Coca? So through a mutual friend, the Mile family, my late great boss at ESPN, Anthony Mile, and his son, Mikey, is very close with Matthew Coca. So there's, there's probably nothing in this world that Coca could ask of me that I would not turn around and, and try to provide for that young man. So more than happy to be with you today and, and to see Coca there for a brief minute before we got started. So the six degrees, Mikey... People, Nothing Personal fans know when I talk about Mikey because he's involved with Nothing Personal during doing the helping with the mailbag pod at the end of every month. So I know Mikey well, and his father was a giant in the industry, and certainly his tentacles are still all over CBS and CBS Sports HQ. And Coca is a direct descendant of the sort of more meal uh, tree of knowledge, and he's now been producing Nothing Personal since we started. And Knowing my view of Fight Island and, and MMA and my interest in my renewed interest in it. Actually, that's not true. It's not renewed. It's new, brand sure. new interest in it. And uh, so I'm thankful you're here. I got to get right into it with you because I don't want to waste a second of your time or our audience. You were on Fight Island, weren't you? I was. I was there for the first two shows and the accompanying quarantine on the front end. Flew from Miami to Vegas first. I do live in South Florida where a lot of your coworkers reside. So we flew to Vegas, did a 36-hour quarantine there. Once we got to Abu Dhabi, it was a 48-hour quarantine in our room. And I got to tell you, man, it's crazy when you think about being at the W Hotel on Yaz Island in Abu Dhabi, the nicest hotel suite that I've ever been in. And yet when they gave me a wristband after 48 hours to leave my room, it was like the greatest thing that had ever happened to me, David. I honestly felt like they had dropped a briefcase of a million bucks in my front door just because I could actually walk outside. And you were only quarantined for 48 hours? hours. I was quarantined for 48 hours. You know, I had a false positive when I arrived and that sort of complicated things. But thankfully, I followed that up with five negatives. So I'm not sure what happened. I was negative when I left Vegas, false positive upon arrival, which was a little bit of a hiccup, but all is well that ends well. I was allowed to leave after 48 hours. And then I needed two more negatives to go on the air for the pay-per-view at UFC 251 and and thankfully produced those two negatives. And, and here we are a few weeks removed. So it's interesting because sports, other sports are dealing with false positive. I was not aware that you were, were in that category. Juan Soto of the Washington Nationals tested positive before opening day of the Washington Nationals of Major League Baseball. He's claiming, though, it was a false positive because he had tested negative so many times after that. He finally got cleared by MLB, but D.C., the actual government that has to be involved in clearing people in, in the Washington area, they have not cleared him as of yet. So how did you get comfortable from your own standpoint when you saw that false positive? Because 
let's let's face it the first time you see a positive you don't know that it's a false positive it's just a positive positive so what was going through your mind were you reviewing every single thing you had done yes there was a little bit of that and retracing your steps but david i got to be honest with you even though i was living in a hotbed in south florida we were sanitizing our groceries and not only did i quarantine in vegas for 38 hours or 36 hours whatever it was but I got on an airplane with everybody who had tested negative in Las Vegas. So we were on a chartered flight. Everyone was negative. So it just didn't add up. I was completely asymptomatic. You know, I was trying to burn the lungs out in my room just to make sure that I wasn't feeling anything symptom wise. But uh, I just chalked it up to a false positive. I can't say that I haven't had false negatives at time. You know, we're a little bit numb and conditioned to this. It's not that we don't have respect for the virus, but at this point, I've done eight or 10 shows. I've quarantined in Vegas and Abu Dhabi. I've been in major metropolitan airports that are deemed not safe. So at this point, I'm a little bit jaded, um, but obviously thankful to be healthy and that my family's healthy and to be working, of course, at the end of the day. So you, you brought up three interesting points. First, from a, let's talk about hypochondria. So if I ever would have a positive test, as it is when COVID started, I was the guy taking my temperature every five minutes. Yeah. I thought at least once a day that I couldn't breathe. I was holding my breath in for 20 seconds, which they said was a way to say you don't have COVID. I got the pulse oximeter for my great Jewish mother. So I had my pointer in that thing 10 times a day. So did you, you had no signs of hypochondria. So once you get the positive test, I can only imagine my throat's closing. Oh, of course, absolutely. And I drew comfort in the fact that Jared Gordon, who was a competing featherweight, who also lived in South Florida, he had a positive. So maybe there was an alignment there. But again, the night before, essentially, David, you know, 24 hours prior, we had both tested negative. So we were trying to make sense of it all. But again, also trying to lean into the positive, right? Like I was trying to wrap my head in mid-April around flying from Miami to Fresno, California, and then getting in a car to Lemoore, California to call three title fights in a very scary climate, right? So doing things in mid-July for me uh, just felt a lot safer. And candidly, where we were in Abu Dhabi felt like the, the safest place in the world to be calling a sport. Does Dana White sign your paychecks? I don't know if he signs them, but yes, I mean, I work for the promotion. I'm a full-time staff employee, and uh, I think because of that, I know the inner workings of our safety and security team pretty damn well, and so I was pretty confident, if not bullish, that, that we could get shows off in, in this unforeseen climate, you know? So were you confident in the beginning? I want to take people back because Dana White, I, I've given him a lot of attention sort of on, on nothing personal, and... One of my issues is that he was very front and center early. Not, I don't want to call him a Corona hoaxer, a Corona truther. He's a right. businessman. And I have great respect for that because that's our show. It's always about business. It's nothing personal. But in the beginning, he got some criticism, not just from me, but really from many different people because he was aggressively trying to get back. And to me, he is one of the great, success stories in the adjustments that he made. Because my view is in the beginning, he was sort of reckless about, we can do this in California. We're going to do this here. I'm going to buy an island. We're going to do this. We're going to do that. Yeah, I'm on a conference call with Trump. I'm here with the other commissioners. I'm here. I'm there. And as an employee, I would imagine that every minute you're getting a call thinking you've got a UFC to call here, then it's there. And you're just sort of saying, hold on. But then it seems that he recovered. And now UFC, to me, 
is an example of the success. Tell me, working for them, what was it like in the beginning? You just talked about you were thinking of California. That was insane. There was no way that was going to happen. Of course. And I'm talking to my bosses upstairs and then going down and trying to navigate and negotiate with my wife as to whether or not she was going to let me go to Lamar, California. And it wasn't so much about the career opportunity. It really wasn't. You know, my job was never in jeopardy. We were all made to feel very comfortable if we wanted to step away. But it was that Dana White was so front and center trying to get our live sporting events off the ground. So is his lead play-by-play guy just not going to show up? At that point, I felt not just an obligation to Dana, but to the rest of the executives. And I think it's easy, David, in retrospect now, three months later, for me to sit here and say, man, what has the Palm Beach County School District been doing for three months? You know, everything Dana White was doing. Granted, they cut my check, but everything he was doing was solution-based. And it's hard for me to not wonder aloud why more national media and some of the other sports leagues aren't jumping to give the UFC and Dana White credit. Because even though maybe it was bullish and even though maybe it was too soon, it was solution-oriented. And they knew there were going to be positive tests. And they knew there were going to be false positives. And they knew there were going to be unforeseen obstacles. But you had to attack things. And I sit here as a parent in Palm Beach County candidly thinking they didn't attack anything. And now they're delaying school for a month because they didn't try to get ahead of it. So I am the furthest thing from a coronavirus tough guy. I have been in touch with a lot of respiratory therapists. I think among UFC employees, maybe I have more respect for this virus than anyone. Um, But I, I do give a lot of credit for the boss for keeping his head to the pavement and recognizing that he had to figure out a way to to keep the show going on so i want to get back to fight island because i have a uh, we have a segment on nothing personal called wait to see and i talked about fight island i didn't believe fight island would happen i was under the impression and i want to know whether or not this was the impression you had at first i thought he was buying johnny depp's island right. or richard branson's island or the place where they, or, or the place where that jail is, Coco in San Francisco. Oh my God, I'm having a moment. Alcatraz. Like I figured it was an island like that. Did you? When did you know that it was Abu Dhabi? Way before the public. I don't know how many weeks, but my pipe dream of it being in the Bahamas or right off the coast of Florida ended pretty early for me. So I knew it was Abu Dhabi. I knew that I had been there last September. So even though this was entirely unforeseen and this entire square mile, 9.6 square miles, was completely shut off, as you know, from the rest of the world, that was not our reality when we went there for UFC 242 last September. But it started to make sense that even though this was super far away, if somehow they could figure out a way to get the athletes and get the personnel on location, that Abu Dhabi was the perfect location. I'd be lying to you if I didn't call my boss, Zach Candido, and say, dude, can't we just call the fights in Vegas? We really got to go over there. Um, But obviously, I think you understand the value for an announcer um, in in fight sport or not uh, being there in the arena uh, has a lot of value. So was it an actual island? Well, I mean, it's I guess some would call it a peninsula, but it certainly feels like an island. I mean, you're on the water. Uh, I feel like I'm living a movie in 2020, David. The whole thing is totally surreal. And for me, after the false positive, I got people in hazmat suits coming to my room every 12 hours to administer these tests. The whole thing was absolutely crazy. So yeah, it felt like an island to me, albeit a far away one. And so you get to Fight Island. There were no fans. So do you, when you're calling MMA, do you care whether there are fans around? Because I've been speaking to a bunch of broadcasters about this because in baseball, the broadcasters in general, when the team's on the road, the, the road team, their broadcasters are staying at the home stadium and broadcasting from their home broadcast booth 
Right. Let's say for a game they're watching on TV the way we're watching at home. Do you find a difference by having fans around or not? Does it matter to you? So back in 2010, I called the WBC heavyweight championship fight when I was in Bristol at ESPN, Vitaly Klitschko versus Shannon Briggs. The whole time I thought I was going to Germany, two weeks before the fight, they tell me I'm going to be calling it in Bristol, Connecticut and doing the opening on camera in front of a green screen. So that's not ideal. I can tell you that. Certainly once you put the cans on and you're tunneled in, I don't think you're really thinking about the crowd. It's a performance enhancer for me when I have it, but it's certainly not a crutch in anything that uh, – that I feel like I need to lean on to, to get the requisite energy for the moment. It was a little weird capping the first championship fight uh, when you're hearing your voice echo off the other side of the arena, but uh, I'm so focused on the monitor and the crowd at home and my producers in my ear that, candidly, once, once there's a touch of gloves, the crowd's the last thing on my mind. So what is the plan now? You're back here. Are, the, is, are there still UFC? Are there still some people in Abu Dhabi? No. So Fight Island is a wrap, at least for the first iteration. I think all indications are that we're going to be back there uh, at least once in 2020, if not again. But it's Vegas, at least for now, every single weekend in August. So I'll be heading out there to do two straight. And again, the climate is not, you know, go do the event, come home. The climate is go to Vegas, quarantine for 48 hours before my first television obligation. And then I'll stay out there for two weeks. So uh it's been, a, it's been a crazy ride, but whether it's Vegas or Abu Dhabi, I feel pretty bullish in saying that the UFC is going to be going basically every weekend the rest of the year. Do they have you flying commercially to Vegas? Yes. So I've, I've been doing the American Airlines jaunt. And uh, again, not ideal going to Miami International Airport, David. I mean, there's no sugarcoating it, but uh, it is. And Americans it. filling middle seats, too. If they're flying coaching and first, you're right next to someone. And Vegas, the American Airlines, I may know why, I may know this. The American flights, they're the narrow body uncomfortable flights the seat barely reclines whether you're in first or a coach and yeah. it's very much like a cattle car and the flying time from miami is about five yeah it's like five and a hook and uh and you're right and, and it seems like the coronavirus tough guys are up in first class so i don't know maybe i should move to the back because it seems like the guys in first class just can't wait to uh to take their mask off or shame you for wearing it the whole flight so you're gonna go out there you're calling i want to ask you you know, you, you have hit the pinnacle. So what there, I get letters. I ran a team for 18 years. And, uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to be the point guard for the Knicks. And when I stopped growing, then I said, it may be easier to own a team than to play on a team. And so I didn't do that either, but I ended up being a president of a team, but being a play by play guy for the NBA was a dream come true. And I would watch games on mute and I would call the games Tell me, tell me how you got to where you are. I think our audience would be interested because so many people want to be you and want to be anyone who gets an opportunity the way we have to have a career in sports. Just give us a, a quick rundown of how you got yourself in a position to take advantage of your opportunity. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I'll try to do it as efficiently as possible. I think you and I in our formative years were probably of a similar mind. You know, I wanted to be the point guard for the Celtics or the radio voice of the Celtics. I think for a lot of sports fans in Boston, we grew up, at least in my generation, putting WEEI, the radio stick there, on a pedestal. So I wanted to be a radio guy. I started out as a sports writer at the Metro West Daily News. I was also teaching autistic kids at the time. I just felt like there were better print journalists. There were better writers, more creative writers. But if we would engage in an argument in the newsroom, I felt like I could carry my own. 
So the goal kind of pivoted. I went back to school to the Connecticut School of Broadcasting just so that I could get an internship at the Sporting News Radio affiliate in Boston. That gave me an opportunity to do sports updates to eventually host Afternoon Drive uh, with Anthony Pepe and Ryan Rossillo, a guy who's gone on to do a lot of big things in this industry. And then I was in Bristol at ESPN, you know, doing national sports center updates, eventually matriculated over to TV. I was brought on by Anthony. I'm sorry. One second. You just did a full yada yada, right? That's a Seinfeld yada yada. You were here, you were here. And then I was in Bristol, Connecticut at ESPN. So that's got to be a yada yada. How do you get from, because getting the first two jobs you just described are hard enough, but that's a, but that's a big jump. When you say, then I was at Bristol, and then all of a sudden I'm the head play-by-play guy for UFC working directly for Dana White. So right. tell me about at least one of those yadas. I will, I will absolutely give you that. So I was like any radio guy, I think, in Boston trying to get that big job that wasn't coming in that market. So I was sending out resumes, and I couldn't get a bite in Montana or Albuquerque, New Mexico. But lo and behold, Pete Saccone in Bristol, Connecticut, heard my demo, gave me an opportunity to come down and audition. And I think what's interesting about Bristol is that when you go down there and you're doing an audition, you're not in a back studio. They throw you on national radio and have you do the 420 Eastern Standard Time update. And you can either hang or you can't. And when I went back to teach at the Connecticut School of Broadcasting, I always told that story because you better be damn ready when your audition comes because you think you're showing up for an interview, you're wearing a suit, you look nice, pocket square, and they just want to hear how you sound on national radio in about 20 minutes. So go type a script, see how it goes. So thankfully, I was able to work my way into ESPN part-time on the radio side. Eventually, they were recruiting talent from radio to TV. Anthony Moore-Miles' digital media department hired me in a full-time capacity. A year later, they launched MMA Live on ESPN.com, which was a news and information television show surrounding mixed martial arts, really the first national show of its kind, eventually ended up on ESPN2. And so the UFC caught wind of my work. And at a time when I was not getting nearly enough play-by-play work at ESPN. You know, eventually I just got sick of being a highlight machine, right, on ESPN News, sitting in a studio. Let me take you to Kansas City for the Royals and the Reds. I just got sick of doing that every night. I want to do play-by-play. Wasn't getting enough opportunities at ESPN. I'd get a college football game here or there. So at the time, I was sort of ESPN's default mixed martial arts guy. When the UFC was doubling its schedule, they offered me a job rooted in play-by-play, despite the fact that I had only called a handful of MMA events in my life. And uh, the rest, as they say, is history. You know, I tried to do it as efficiently as possible, but certainly had some breaks and some people who believed in me, uh, not the least of which was Anthony Mormile back in the day. I think it's important for the listeners to hear something because Mark Cuban had something to say during the pandemic that can inform a lot of our listeners It's a very common question and a common thought. I want to be doing something else. I want to improve my position. I want my dream job. And right now with unemployment higher, what Mark Cuban said is just take any job you can find because you don't know what the future is. You don't know who you're going to meet. You don't know what tentacles, when you reach out, people will grab them. And listening to your story, it's important that people understand that's not a total success story in that you applied to places and didn't get it. You sent audition tapes to stations who didn't hire you. You didn't mention that, but I would assume it has to be true. You went to auditions where you felt good and it didn't happen for you, but you didn't stop and you somehow ended up in MMA when your goal may not have been that. 
And now look, so I think when people are saying that I want to do X for a living and if I can't get a job doing X, then just forget the whole thing. And I think in this day and age that that's the wrong approach. You have to be flexible and you have to be willing to work your way around and move around. And people these days feel like if they don't get their number one job immediately, they just pack it in. And I hope people are listening to what John did because it, that is a story. It's a success story that has failure. Well, you put it well. And, and Kieran Portley, who, who I'm sure you probably know, who is one of my bosses at ESPN, you know, he said, hey, you're going to host a poker show called Inside Deal. You're going to host a golf show called Quiet, Please. And I didn't know a lick about poker, right? So I wasn't super enthused about, you know, getting in a studio in Bristol at 6.30 a.m. because they wouldn't give poker any other time slot, you know, to host that show. But you throw it at the wall, you see what sticks. I didn't even want to do TV. You know, I didn't want to be in front of the camera. I just wanted to do radio. But mixed martial arts grabbed me by the balls. I got the bug, something fierce, and really wanted to start devoting my life to it and, uh, and got a lucky break, and I've been running with it, trying to earn that seat ever since. So Port is the one who greenlit nothing personal, by the way. How about that? Yeah, I figured as much. I figured as much. So he, without him, I mean, none of this for me is possible. I mean, I, I, I probably buried the lead, not mentioning his name sooner, but the UFC opportunity does not happen without him. MMA Live for me does not happen without him. He thought I had a, well, I still do, but he thought I had a serious twitch when I auditioned for MMA Live that couldn't be overcome. I've had to work really hard to calm my body down. When I do my UFC voiceovers, I'm in perpetual motion sitting here in my office. So I'm still working on it, Ports, but uh, I appreciate him. Wait, sure. so what was what's the twitch is just movement. You're saying you move, and does that impact your voice because you're close to the microphone, then far like this, then close like this? Yeah, but more so when you're on camera, right? You can't be doing any of that. So I would have to just calm my body down, and it would affect my delivery. When I'm doing a UFC voiceover that's going to be played in the arena, and I'm sitting here in my office, I'm swaying the whole time because the mic is thrust right up on my lip. So when you're on Fight Island and you're calling, are, do you have an IFB in, and they're saying on cam, on cam, so you know to calm your body down, and when they don't say it, you're going back and forth? Absolutely, but you should see me like at the beginning of a pay-per-view when I say Dateline, Las Vegas, Nevada. I'm screaming like a lunatic, veins popping out of my neck. I'm usually standing up for that in a non-COVID-19 atmosphere. Now in this setting, I literally have to sit for the entire broadcast because I have to go right on camera after the opening stanza. So uh, we've had to make some pivots, obviously, plexiglass at the broadcast table and everything else. But uh, it's been a hell of a ride, man. Hell of a ride. So I want to talk about some of the fights that you've called. <clears throat> do, you have a, do you have any memorabilia that you keep? Like, do you do steal stuff from Dana? No. Like when you're in Abu Dhabi, did you take anything from the, from the room? Did you fly on like an Emirates charter flight? It was Etihad Airways, and it was a charter flight with all of us. Uh, what did you steal from it? Like, a, a, come on. It was, a, you know, everything is embroidered like UFC Fight Island. So, David, I'll be honest with you. Like, I took a menu back with me. But it, we're confiscating sanitizer. I don't know what you think we're doing in this atmosphere. I'm looking for, I mean, can we cuss here? I'm looking for sanitizing wipes, you know? That's what I'm looking for right now. But, no, of course, programs and things like that have a lot of sentimental value for me. So, I'll try to look to the executive table if there's a program after a show but I got to be honest with you, man, like these shows run together for us when you're doing five and six weeks, as much as I have artwork in my studio to sort of memorialize some of the more seminal moments in, in my career, the bigger fights that I've called, 
it, it is a very much a Belichick mindset. You know, I hate to say that to a, to a New Yorker, but we're on to Cincinnati. We're on to the next show. I mean, even when I have a big pay-per-view, if there's a show the week after, I'm doing voiceovers for that show and trying to embed myself into that a little bit. So uh, in this climate, whether, you know, COVID-19 or otherwise, 41 plus shows a year, there's not a lot of time to sort of enjoy the fruits of your labor. So what is your... What is the biggest fight you ever called? You just said that you keep some stuff. What's the biggest one? Probably Khabib Nurmagomedov versus Conor McGregor. Uh, but again, coming back and doing UFC 249, Ferguson versus Gaethje on May 9th when the entire sports world was shut down in an empty arena in Jacksonville, Florida, that felt like as big as any sporting event that I had ever called. But there's a definite... Conor McGregor effect that I think a lot of us feel when you're packing your suitcase for a Conor McGregor fight, it feels different. Wait, was that the one where the guy he fought jumped into the stands after I I have some recollection of that. Was that, were you near there? Were you breaking that up? Like Ron Artest and the Pistons going into the stands and fighting? So I was loving every minute of it, but I was on a headset trying to sort of relay to the audience what was going on. It was such a weird thing as an announcer to try to navigate because I do have a producer in my ear. And at any point he could say lay out and just let the moment and let the pandemonium speak for itself. So I'm cognizant of that, but literally the fight ends and 20 seconds later, I'm calling a brawl. So at one point I said, you know, veins popping, all hell has broken loose. And it became sort of part of the soundtrack for that moment. It was not my intention. The only thought I remember having, David, was you're just going to call what you see until they tell you to shut the F up. And at one point they did ask us to lay out and we did. But uh, it was crazy walking back to my hotel room that night. For sure. But tell me the circumstances. Did you notice it as it was happening? Were you late to see it because you were focused? You say you're embedded in a moment. You couldn't have been looking for that because who would expect a fighter to jump into a crowd so where was your head exactly right I didn't see Conor McGregor throw a shot you know but I did see Khabib out of the corner of my right eye peel over the octagon and leave so at that point my focus had shifted solely to what was happening outside the octagon and not what was happening inside the octagon which obviously was more craziness and madness but uh you know you never know what's going to play out And I think that MMA, and I know you've gotten the bug a little bit over the last several months, it is the theater of the unpredictable. And I don't want to sit here and say that MMA has ruined other sports for me. It certainly has ruined boxing a little bit for me because I don't have the same appetite and boxing doesn't have the same appeal for me. But this sport is so exciting and unpredictable that other sports haven't held up. I grew up a Red Sox fan in Massachusetts. I could barely watch it at bat now. Tell me, because it's too boring? Well, yeah. Or they stink. Well, right. The Red Sox are not a good outfit right now. But even when I put my cell phone aside and I say, all right, I'm going to try to watch an inning, invest myself in the broadcast. Yeah, it's just too slow. It's too inactive for me. Uh, And boxing is that way. You know, I did have a boxing radio show for a while. Boxing was my inroads to mixed martial arts. And I don't even think there's enough going on there. They're holding and hugging each other half the time. What about the Celtics? Oh, you'll never, never take the NBA guy out of me. You know, we're excited for this shortened season. I think obviously it gives them a better chance to not have to play the Bucks in Milwaukee or the Raptors in Toronto potentially. So, uh, well, they definitely will not be playing the Bucks in Milwaukee or the Raptors in Toronto. They could be playing the actual teams, but definitely not Milwaukee. So you're still an NBA fan. You can sit down and watch a Celtics game. 
Absolutely. And it's not that I have lost my Red Sox fanaticism necessarily. I check the box scores every day, but I just can't be a viewer anymore. But I grew up a Patriots fan when they were the laughing stock of the NFL. I mean, my record in Foxborough is probably 50 or 60 games below 500. So it's interesting for me to hear from young MMA fans who are getting into the NFL, you know. They were the paper bags. Were you there for Steve Grogan and the paper bags? I don't know how old you are. Yeah, absolutely. You know, 1982, 83, 84, those are some of my earliest memories, you know. Uh, I even left the tuck rule game early, if I'm being honest to your audience, right, because Tom Brady fumbled. So I left, and they wouldn't let me back in. So if the Celtics called you right now and said, listen, we want you to be the lead radio play-by-play for the Boston Celtics, would you leave UFC? You know, it's a great question. I mean, Sean Grandy is actually the radio play-by-play guy and a good friend of mine, so I wouldn't want anywhere near his seat, but it's not a question I get every day and my wheels are churning a little bit. I think that was always the dream to be able to to call a Red Sox, a Celtics, or a Patriots game. I, I know I can't go call a Boston Bruins game right now. You know, I'm going to stay in my lane there. But yeah, that was always the dream. I think the dream has kind of pivoted to the NFL for me. I've done the Super Contest every year for seven years. I've been betting on sports essentially every day since 1996. I am a rabid How NFL proud fan. you must be. <laughs> oh, it's it's been amazing. But I'm a huge NFL fan, a big fantasy football guy. So were I to retire or lose my voice before I got a chance to call an NFL game, I think that is maybe a, bit, a bigger motivator for me than the Celtics at this point in time. But I like the fact that I can be an NFL fan and have my Sundays. I like the fact that I can watch the Celtics and, and still be a fan with emotions and everything else. So I think I have it pretty good, all things considered. But this dovetails back to what we were talking about before, which is as, as someone, you're, you're at the top of your profession. But even people at the top, if you got a call, it's business. If you got a call and they doubled your salary, the Celtics offered to double your salary, I think you're calling Dana and saying, listen, either you match this, I got a family, and by the way, it's the Celtics. See you later. And there's nothing to be embarrassed about that. Yeah, I mean, I don't know, and my wife and I talk a lot about this, how I would be if I gave up the UFC, right? Because sometimes, you know, not so much the devil you know, but I don't know if I would miss it to the extent to which maybe my wife thinks I would. I mean, I will order every UFC pay-per-view as long as I live, but I don't know how much of an appetite I have for all the international travel. I got three kids under nine, you know, I can't be doing this forever. You know what I mean? So yes, domestically, I think a lot about the national football league and going back and getting an offer from the Celtics, even if I haven't called basketball in a while would be a dream. So, uh, you're giving me a lot to think about here on a Friday afternoon. David. I like it. I like it. So I want to go back to some of your memorabilia and some of your issues. I have an issue. I can't pronounce names. So I mess them all up. Coke is in my ear as the producer of Nothing Personal, and he gets grumpy with me. And the names in MMA are difficult. So take us through the process. Hey, first of all, have you ever screwed one up on the air? Oh, yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, they ever want to fight you when you do that. Do they hear about that? Or do you lie and say, no, I said it right? Well, I mean, the worst thing I did is I, I attributed a child to a kid who didn't have a kid. So he gets back to the locker room after winning a fight and he's got 30 text messages from, from people who said, Hey, the play-by-play guy says you have a two and a half year old son care to tell us about this. (laughs) His wife was two and a half months pregnant. Something got lost in translation in the phone interview. 
But no, we screw up names. We have obviously international fighters out the wazoo and it makes it very difficult. The one thing that I will say, and it sounds trite, but practice really makes perfect. I've tried to impart this upon our Octagon announcer, Bruce Buffer, and everybody else. If you practice the hardest name on our roster 50 times before you get to the arena, you really shouldn't need phonetics. And we've taken a page out of NBC's book in taking the athletes and having them say all their names to tape. So I have every single, all 600 fighters saying their name to tape on my cell phone. So I will listen to that and I will practice and I will do voiceovers before I get to the arena. And most of the time, 99% of the time, I don't even need phonetics by the time I arrive because so I you have fight note cards, right? Like you have cards you use when you're, when you're broadcasting, you've done your homework. You're telling me that you don't use phonetics for some names on those cards. Come on, man. I have my fighter library here. I have over 5,000 alphabetized. I handwrite every single one of them. Um, and you will even notice Katsunori Kikuno right there. There's no phonetics to be found anywhere on the fight card. Now, there are certain names, right? We have a guy, Hamzad Shimaev, who just made his UFC debut, fought twice on Fight Island. He's all the rage right now. That one's pretty tough for me. So that one I did write some phonetics on. But Joanna Yoon Jacek and Modestus Bukowskis and Andreas Mikhailidis. If I've said it 50 times, it's as easy as David Sampson. By the time I get to the arena, really you, you just did a huh. That sounded very Jewish of you. I say that. You can say huh like l'chaim. Well, I was B'nai Mitzvah, so there you go. <laughs> I love it. By the way, if you, people who are listening um, – John's area is much like mine in that it's very clean, very neat. I'm noticing potential OCD situation. And then he brought out his fight note cards that if you're not watching this on, on YouTube, nothing personal, David Sampson, you don't see that the, the fight note cards are done in, in a file cabinet or in a note cabinet. They, are, they could be color-coded. They're definitely in order. They are done immaculately. And I'm seeing, is this, a, is this who you are? Is that how you prepare, and are you that way in your personal life or just your professional life? Yes. I mean, my wife would tell you that I've let myself go in the personal life a little bit when it comes to, like, picking up my clothes off the floor. I was better about that when we were dating. But I'm very obsessive and compulsive about my fighter cards in particular. I think a lot of NFL play-by-play guys have their system. They have their charts. And I remember when I got a call to do a football assignment and I hadn't called a game in four years, I'm Googling eye and eagle football chart. I'm trying to figure out as best I can whose chart to sort of emulate. But for me, handwriting, it helps commit it to memory. It's really like going back to school and that's my way to study it. So even though it is more cumbersome and arduous and it probably takes me 14 or 16 hours per fight card to do it that way, it commits a lot of it to memory so that in the middle of a fight, I'm not having to look down because I don't have to tell you in our sport, you know, all it takes is one second looking down and you miss the biggest knockout in UFC history. So it's my system. I probably need a fireproof safe. Other than that, uh, it hasn't failed me yet. So kids learn so differently now. I didn't have computers because I'm old. And so I had to take notes. And so the way I learned and I did, I do it to this day is when I write something, that's how I remember it because I remember myself watching it being written down by my hand. And that's how I passed the bar. That's how I passed my exams because it certainly wasn't from attending class. So I would write down things. So it's interesting whether or not kids, my kids are older than yours, they have learned to learn a different way. 
because they do it with their fingers now in a way that I didn't learn. You know, I had to take a typing class, by the way, and there are no typing classes anymore because you're expected when you're in kindergarten that you know how to use your iPad. It's amazing. So you're a dinosaur with those note cards, by the way. Well, any of us, I think, that were born in the 70s are really, we felt like when my dad was buying a hamburger for five cents that I couldn't relate to that guy. And there's even more of a gap, I think, between us and our children. But I have a lot of respect for guys like you, man, because I sat down really at a crossroads. I was studying for the GMATs to to go try to get my MBA, or I was going to go back to broadcasting school so I could get an internship without being paid for it. And I didn't think I could pass the GMATs. And that's ultimately what led me to go to broadcasting school. So uh, I was never a good student necessarily, but at least when it comes to handwriting fighter cards, I've done okay. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com. So tell me, tell me about uh, Conor McGregor. He's, would you say he's the most well-known MMA in history? Like you see the, you see on the Mount Rushmore of the most famous, maybe not the best, but certainly the most well-known. There's no doubt about it. Uh, it. It's amazing to think where Ronda Rousey was that somebody could have actually passed her at any point in time. But Conor McGregor has transcended uh, every line you would want to transcend. And uh, I think the only thing that now really is the question is when you say Mount Rushmore, there's no doubt in terms of his celebrity, his star power, every needle is moved. But to what extent does he care about his mixed martial arts legacy? And if he cares about it as much as I think he does, then he'll be back because he hasn't defended a title. And I think he wants more scalps on the resume. It, it remains to be seen, but I just, I don't think he's going to be happy feet up in retirement if he doesn't win a few more high profile, high level MMA fights. So is he driven by ego or money? I think ego, uh, but I also think prize fighting, right? If you think it just wasn't all that long ago, April 6, 2013, he made his UFC debut. So even though he doesn't need money and generationally nobody under the McGregor banner is ever going to need money. That's not why he got to the table. He wanted to go down as one of the greatest mixed martial arts athletes and UFC champions of all time. So you say that, but I've had so many Major League Baseball players who had generational wealth who blew through it like it was $1.50. 
So unless you, there, there is a chance, right? I mean, there's some stories about Connor. Give me a story about one of your fighters. I want to say Connor McGregor that, that none, none of our audience would know of about a personal moment that you had with him. Did you ever have an oh shit moment where you are with McGregor or with someone else and you're saying to yourself, God, I'm just a this schnook from Boston and I'm sitting here face to face with one of the greatest athletes of all time. You had to have had a moment like that. Yeah, it's crazy. And I will add, too, in terms of Connor, even just the proper 12 whiskey, how much money he's made off of that. You know, he's found a way to sort of springboard it that I feel pretty confident that his wealth will withstand the test of time. But because we're talking about Connor, when he knocked out Jose Aldo in 13 seconds, and then he comes up to the set and is standing next to us doing an interview, in that moment, I'm thinking, do I belong, right? I mean, I guess you do get to a point, and I think age really helps, right? All of a sudden you hit 40, at least for me, I feel like once I hit 50, all bets are off. But once I hit 40, I felt like kind of the old guy in the room a little bit, especially around all of the young MMA talent. So I never felt that lack of belonging. But yeah, when Connor knocked out Jose Aldo in 13 seconds, it felt like the whole world was watching. And why am I the guy on this set? You know, where's Scott Van Pelt? You know, where's JB? It just felt like somebody else maybe should have been there. What was your first question to him after he did that? Do you remember? You know, I try to leave it pretty open-ended. You know, I've had a lot of people in my journalism career tell me how to ask questions and what not to ask and make sure it's not a question that can be answered yes or no. But how do you feel? I mean, what, wh- how did that play out relative to your expectations going in is always on the tip of my tongue. But uh, you don't need to ask much. You congratulate a fighter and then you let the wind-up doll go. So you spent time, did you work with Joe Rogan, by the way? He's my primary broadcast partner now. So we have, uh, the first time I worked with him was 2012. And now we have, you know, uh, coming up, it'll be four years in January. So So he made him, he, to me, he's the Howard Stern of podcasters in that he made a huge business decision to go to do a deal with Spotify and go behind a paywall. And it's fascinating what's happening in the world of podcasts. Uh, When you started with him, did you know he was on this path? Yeah, I mean, obviously, 2012, his podcast was going on. And even back then, I sort of thought the Howard Stern comparisons were appropriate in terms of their impact on not just the American man, but men across the world and women to a lesser extent, right? But Howard Stern has this global presence that is undeniable, and Joe Rogan has that to such an extent. It extends so far beyond the mixed martial arts waters. So, yeah, even back then in 2012, I was very starstruck. You know, I got the call to do a pay-per-view at UFC 155 on three days' notice, right? So I'm driving around on Christmas Eve in Vegas, and, and my boss calls me and says, hey, you're getting the call up to the big leagues. You're calling UFC 155 with Joe Rogan this weekend. So I was starstruck sharing that space with him uh, from day one. But now it's, it's a friendship thing. And, and obviously we bond on fighting more than anything else. But I have a podcast because of his, right? I mean, there's so many of us that are in the podcast space because of the Joe Rogan experience. So I couldn't be happier for him. Uh, I would love to see him, you know, get some more recognition when it comes to his analysis I think mixed martial arts is still battling some some old boys clubs when it comes to maybe Emmys and things like that. I don't know why Joe doesn't get more domestic respect in the U.S. for his ability as an analyst, but as a comic, as a podcaster, uh, he is certainly transcendent. He is a renaissance man, and uh, 
I, I couldn't be happier for him, truly. You know, it's a, it's a really big deal for a really good good guy. So we can't end this without talking about a show that I'm watching right now, and it's called Kingdom. Have you watched the entire series? I have not. I know my, my, my podcast partner, Kenny Florian, has a cameo, but I have not seen it. What's his, what's his, what does he do there? I think he did, uh, he had a commentary role, so he was just in the cage interviewing a fighter before or after a fight or something. Does he have a beard? Yes. And so he does, he's the commentator who does each of the fights. So he's been on more than one episode. I think he has a, I don't know if it's as recurring as that, but I believe he's on it. Coca might know better, but yeah, he's been on the show. So one thing that I needed to ask, tell me about, there's a concept in Kingdom about cut day. Cut day is when you're going in. This is, I'm not telling you this. This is my view of what cut day is. It's when you have to go in and you have to hit a certain weight. And assuming it's a legitimate fight where they don't go plantains on the scale, you actually have to be a certain weight. And according to this show, they put sweatshirts on, they duct tape the sleeves in their feet. They, they work out on a bike in the sauna. They use a credit card to wipe the sweat off. Then they weigh themselves. Then they go back and do it again. Is that really, is cut day a thing? Oh, yeah. And it gets a lot more horrifying than that, David. You know, I don't know how much time you have, but there are a lot of athletes who feel like they're staring death in the face. You know, I could tell you horror stories for days of brothers outside saunas being held back by other cornermen who are trying to go in there and save their brother, who eventually ends up making weight and you know, goes and wins the huge fight, right? So it's a crazy thing. Uh, I think we are in a better place as a sport than we were five or 10 years ago. I mean, there's certainly other promotions that make guys fight at their natural weight and they don't allow for any weight cutting. The UFC started in 1993. You know, Anthony Mormile, his worry was always that there was going to be an octagon death either on weigh-in day or in the cage. Hasn't happened yet, knock on wood. But again, for a lot of these athletes that water load and know how to do it the right way and use the bathtub to great effect, there's a way to do this uh, that doesn't make it so, so terrible. But having said that, David, there are also a lot of wrestlers, right, who have done this for years who aren't afraid to wake up on weigh-in day with 14 or 16 pounds to cut because they want to walk in the octagon with the extra weight 48 hours later. So it is the number one inconvenient truth of our sport. Weigh-in day scares me every time, um, but I don't see it changing. So did you have to do a cut day when you were in Warrior? So funny. No, I mean, I tend to cut a little bit of weight before I go on camera because they measure me for these suits in 2011. So <laughs> if I'm a shade above 155, it's hard for me to get into my broadcast. With duct tape? Do you use duct tape? I don't. I don't. I, I run in South Florida and I can cut about five, six pounds every time I run outside. But uh, at one point I was hosting a show called UFC Ultimate Insider and they proposed for a segment having me do a weight cut. I was walking at 56 and I was going to cut down to 145 pounds and I would be all for that. I want to see how my body would hold up. I want to see if I would quit in the sauna. I want to see those things. I, I think that the mental toughness that maybe I lacked on the hardwood would rear its ugly head in the sauna, and I'd quit when I was like 47, 48. So maybe we should do a promotion where we'll do a cut day together because I also run in South Florida. I just ran actually 16 miles this morning and have not eaten yet, and so I'm glad I didn't pass out during this because you do lose four or five pounds just by going out for that run. But if we cut day, I'm right now around 127, 
126. And I think that's, I don't know that I can get lower, but maybe we'll do some sort of challenge because cut days scare me. On the show Kingdom, it scares me. The fact that you're saying that it's real in that way and that that's one of your biggest worries, I'm pretty worried about that as well. So we should do it and see how bad it really is. We should do it together. I will tell you, though, you probably have a lower body fat than me, so you will have fewer pounds to lose most likely. Like they, I don't think they'd want to get you much below 23, right? Whereas for me, I think, you know, with all due respect to myself, if I'm 16, 17, 18% body fat, you know, I'm going to be able to lose seven or eight pounds pretty quickly compared to you. But I would love to do it. I think it'd be fun. Coca, I think we have our next plan because we can seriously do this. I wouldn't ask you to do it, Coca. Listen, I can't believe I thank you so much for doing this with us. I promised you 45 minutes. We're over by two minutes. I just had to talk about Cut Day and Kingdom. It is a fascinating job you have. You see a lot of history being made. You've been on the fight island and uh, you're not anywhere near done. So, John, thanks so much for being on Nothing Personal. My pleasure. Anytime, David. All the best. Without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.